So welcome back, listeners, to Snippet Sports Science, proudly brought to you by EliteForm.com. And today we've got a special guest, Dr. Christopher Bradner, strength and conditioning coach who's an Australian, living at Aspire, working at Aspire Academy. Welcome aboard, Christopher. Uh, g'day, Chris. Thanks for having me along. Or do you prefer Chris? Uh, look, you, my mother calls me Christopher, but uh, you, can, you can call me Chris. That's fine. I'll call you Chris. I'm the same as well. I don't like being called Christopher, to be honest. But uh, Only when we're told off, Chris. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So thanks for coming on board. Uh, happy New Year to you. Yeah, thanks, mate. Same to you. Chris did his PhD in the area of blood flow restriction, and it's obviously an area of great interest to myself. And so I'm really honored to have him on board. He's one of the first authors, and this was part of, as I said, his PhD that he did, and really intrigued to get into this and, and possibly also may get some more of his papers as we go along. So just as a little bit of a background first about you, Chris, um, just tell us a bit about your journey as an academic going through your PhD onto your role now at Aspire Academy. Okay, no problems. I think I'll, I'll start with what I'm doing now and work our way back because I think our uh, conversation will be mainly talking about BFR. So at the minute, as you said, I'm, I'm currently working at Aspire Academy, which is a, a sports academy, an elite sports academy in Doha, Qatar. I've been there for four years now, and I was originally employed as a, a talent ID officer. So we spanned the country, and it's only a small country, but we, we basically went to every single primary school in the country, looking at the physical fitness of primary school age boys, age 11 to 12, and uh, bringing the, the best boys into the academy for, for training for a variety of sports. And uh, in the last six months, that role has, has sort of changed, and I'm a full-time S&C now, working with our fencing and our athletic development groups been doing that for the for the last two and a half years or so but that's now a formal job title and before that you know my my journey to get into a spy you know I I, I started studying at Deakin University in uh, 2010 I did an honor study looking at exercise training in the heat and uh, recovery from that exercise training and that kind of fits well into life in Qatar as well because day-to-day temperatures are 50 degrees so it does get hot over there but then after that, I was, I was offered an opportunity to, to do a scholarship, a PhD scholarship at Deakin University and had to come up with a research topic. And you know, I could have continued that line of research, but I knew I was interested in S&C and wanted to do something with training and maybe athletes. You know, everyone wants to work with athletes. But uh, one of my supervisors at the time was, a, was an ex-S&C coach and said, look, there's this thing called a vascular occlusion training, as it was known about 10 years ago. That's what we were calling it. He said, you know, read this paper and, and what do you think? And, you know, I had this PhD scholarship dang, dangling in front of me. I'm like, yep, you know, grabbed it with two hands and wasn't quite sure uh, that's exactly what I wanted to do, but it's, it's turned out to be great. And I think as any PhD student, you, you definitely get very much involved in your, your research and, and you end up loving what you're doing. So my PhD, you know, when I finished, I finished that in 2015. So it was mainly full-time and a little bit part-time after I got the job in, in Qatar. Uh, and uh, the, the finished title was the neuromuscular and cardiovascular responses to resistance training with BFR. So did some acute studies, did some training studies and uh, yeah, it was really good. It's been great for my career so far and it's a, it's a good topic of conversation. Yeah, definitely. I think it's very pertinent. And, and probably at the end there, we'll get into, I guess, the evolution of BFR. According to the snippet type structure of our podcast, we are really keen to go through a specific paper. And the one that we've got in front of us right now is called Muscular Adaptations to Whole Body Blood Flow Restriction Training and Detraining. Is this the first paper in your PhD? 
That's not. I have this is my my final study. Actually, it's a training study. Uh, my first two studies that have been published were acute exercise studies, uh, so resistance training, single arm, so unilateral biceps curl. The first study that was published looked at the cardiovascular responses, and uh, I think at the time when I started, you know, there weren't too many papers that compared blood flow restriction, which is you know with light loads, twenty percent of one rep max. A lot of papers were just comparing with the same load without BFR, and, and you know really. You know, in SNC, everyone's lift heavy weights and we need to lift heavy weights to get bigger and stronger. So why aren't we comparing it? So I think a big theme of my PhD was actually comparing all three training uh, protocols together and, and that sort of evolved across time. So yeah, the first one looked at cardiovascular responses, just a bicep curl training. In a, very generally, we found, you know, all exercise training increases cardiovascular demand and it's, it's not the, any difference with single arm training either. The heavy load condition increased heart rate and blood pressure to greater degrees than lifting light loads. And then the blood flow restriction group was somewhere in between those two. So it was not dissimilar to lifting heavy, but it wasn't dissimilar to lifting light either. And uh, I think for healthy population, that's important. But then as the BFR research has started to do more lately now is looking at clinical populations and elderly populations as well. And that's where our line of thinking was at that time. So that was the first paper. And the second one looked at neuromuscular responses. So we used a technique called transcranial magnetic stimulation and did a whole bunch of brain zapping before and after exercise with heavy loads, light loads and BFR. And basically what we found was acute increases in cortical responses. So increase in excitability, no changes in, in inhibition. But basically that response was increased to a greater degree with the blood flow restriction conditions versus lifting heavy loads and lifting light loads. So something is happening perhaps, you know, at the muscle site, feedback to the brain to say, hey, we need to increase motor output to the muscle to overcome this. Well, it's not a force, but it's a fatigue. And that was maintained for up to 60 minutes post-exercise as well. So they were two acute studies and, and those two studies then led into this training study as well. Some really nice background there. Let's get into the study. As you said, probably has really good application to a lot of SNC coaches out there that need to actually start looking this data beside real world lifting, where we need to be lifting loads at 65, 70% of 1RM. I think, as you know, myself and a lot of other people say, at the end of the day, we need to be lifting heavy load, but we need to be prescribing heavy loads to our athletes. There's no substitute for that. But once again, there are many advantages of using low load or moderate load BFR for athletes who might be compromised. However, saying that, a little bit of background there, you gave some background there. Anything else that you know really stands out that for the listener that's important to outline in your introduction? This is unpublished, uh, this article actually. We've just submitted it to a, a BFR special in the Journal of Frontiers. Uh, so hopefully that goes through review successfully and gets up. I collected this data in 2014 and you know, you've just finished your PhD as well and I'm not sure if you published along the way, but this data has now been sitting, sitting there on my computer for the last four or five years and doing nothing. So it's good to finally submit it and get it out there. From those two acute studies, it evolved into a training study. Not many studies were doing long-term training, so two, four, six weeks. So this was an eight-week training study. When I first started, there were no studies looking at the detraining effects either. So I thought, great, let's just tack that onto the end of it. So, so all in all, it was a, a 12 week, well, an eight-week training study plus four weeks detraining. And we looked at uh, muscular adaptations in healthy young university population. Out of this paper, we looked at changes in strength and changes in mass. 
And then there'll be another paper that comes through as well, which goes on from those two acute studies that look at the training adaptations of the cardiovascular system and also the, the neuromuscular system with the CMS brain zapping stuff. So this is just one aspect of, of, uh, of that final training study that we're trying to, to get out there at the minute. So as I said, yeah, it's an eight-week training study where uh, we got participants to come in and then they were randomized. We had uh, 39 participants involved, 27 males, 12 females, and then they were randomized into one of four training conditions. So one of those conditions was a, a control group that did nothing, a heavy load training group, trained at 70% of their 1RM, a light load training group, which trained at 20% of their 1RM, and then a BFR group, which trained at 20% of 1RM with blood flow restriction. And, and maybe we can talk about those specifics a little bit later. But basically, we measured baseline strength and baseline body composition using a dual x-ray absorptometry or DEXA for short, and muscle thickness with ultrasound. And uh, you know, it was a huge data collection period. We measured it at baseline at four weeks, which is the midpoint of training, eight weeks, the end of training, and then after four weeks of detraining, so 12 weeks. So you know, I was talking to my supervisor recently. It's a 12-week it's a training study, but really to get uh, almost 40 participants through a 12-week training study, you don't do that all at once. And this is like a 12-month, I can't remember exactly, at least 12-month data collection study. So it was pretty full on. One of the main things we looked at was a lot of the studies that were coming out were single exercise or small muscle mass, you know, unilateral biceps or knee extension, or, you know, maybe it was bench press only studies. And we're like, well, that doesn't really replicate real world training. So this was a full body training program with or without BFR. So three upper body exercises and three lower body exercises. Obviously, the BFR wasn't applied to all of that musculature at the same time. And so six resistance exercises. And we measured uh, seven different muscle sites, the adaptations that occurred. Yeah, I think when I read it, the first thing that really stands out for me is, is that it's, it's a really good session. You know, you've got knee extension, back squat, calf raise, barbell, bench press, seated row, and bicep curls. It, it's real world. And I, I think firstly, you know, exactly as you said, I read papers, I get excited by it, and I go, oh, it was a knee extension or it was a bicep curl. And I just go, I can take the findings from that. But this here is something we'd prescribe for our athletes, wouldn't it? I think so. And I hope so. I mean, as I said, it was a university population. So I'll fully disclose that. You know, I was doing a PhD in the university. So it's an easy population to recruit. Uh, you know, the, loved having those posters up there. You know, do you want to increase your strength and muscle size? And it was, it was tough to get 40 participants in a, in a training study. So I'll disclose that early on. But it was that and as well as the detraining effects, I think were the two big aspects of this study that, that we're pretty proud of. Yeah, fantastic. And so just in terms of the BFR, you know, a lot of people talk about cuff size and pressures. Just want to talk briefly about that. And then from that point there, let's just get straight into the results. When I first started my PhD, the question was, you know, how are we going to, to do BFR? Uh, we had no idea. There wasn't too many products available commercially or anything like that. We needed to use it with mass amount of population. Uh, it wasn't just my study going on that, you know, we've ended up having honor students and other PhD students uh, using it as well. So what I found was this surgical equipment. So a Zimmer automatic tourniquet system 3000, so there's a, there's a version 4000 now, but basically it was used to cut off blood flow during surgical procedures. And uh, got onto that, we've got some upper body cuffs and some lower body cuffs. The cuff widths and, and lengths are, are all in the paper, but they were, they were wider than what you might normally see, especially from like the Japanese group. I think the, the lower body cuffs were 10 centimeters and the, the upper body cuffs were 
think eight centimeters. So they were fairly wide, but because we've got wide cuffs, that kind of means that we can use lower restriction pressures as well. And through the evolution of my PhD, you know, when I first started in 2011, there weren't that many studies out there and certainly not in English. You know, the first English paper was published in 1998 and uh, Jeremy Lenecki, who most people, if they know BFR, have heard of Jeremy Lenecki. He's the, the most prolific BFR researcher out there. And he probably only had a couple of papers out at that time point. So uh, nobody really knew what they were doing, arbitrary pressures and, and everything like that. But, but this Zimmer tourniquet system basically allowed us to measure the maximal arterial occlusion in the upper body and lower body just by a, a finger or, or a toe sensor. So what we did, we would sit participants down in an upright position, we would measure their maximal occlusion pressures, and then we would take a percentage of that as their final restriction pressure. And, and we used a percentage of 60%. And that seems to be in line with, with the literature. Some studies have shown uh, 40% is just as effective as 90% restriction pressure. So 60% should be safe enough and effective enough to increase you know, this muscle strength and, and muscle size. And then from that point there, we've got our four different groups, well, three different training groups. What were the main, main findings from this? It's kind of difficult to, to discuss them because we had these three lower body exercises. We had these three upper body exercises that we, we did 1RM testing with. Uh, we had these seven different muscle sites where we measured muscle thickness. And then we had our body composition stuff with the DEXA. And it was hard to write up the discussion because some things went up, some things didn't change, some things might have come down. The things that went up, maybe they were similar between groups. Other times, one group may have had an advantage over another group. So it was a difficult write-up. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a funny one. I've got a figure in front of me. Basically, you know, if we talk about the strength changes first, I guess, the main outcome for me was the knee extension exercise. That was the first exercise we, we did in the training study. It seemed to align a lot with the, the previous BFR literature as well. And we also used the knee extension to, to measure the acute responses for the cardiovascular stuff and the neuromuscular stuff for those other training studies that we're doing. So for me, the knee extension was the main outcome exercise. And what we found was that at four weeks and at the final training point, eight weeks, the blood flow restriction group and the heavy group increased by, I think, 20 and 24% respectively. So the both groups increased similarly. The light load group also increased muscle strength in the knee extension, and all groups increased greater than the control group. You know, why were there no real differences uh, between the groups? I'm not sure. Maybe it was because we, we did include more than one exercise. So, you know, the next exercise we did was the squat. And if squat 1RM increased as well as your knee extension inc increased, then maybe there's an overall effect on muscle strength. And, and that's why there was no differences between groups. So for me, it was kind of difficult to discuss those individual changes. Uh, I will say, though, that for the upper body, it seemed like the heavy load group had, had a much greater advantage in terms of uh, increasing muscle strength. So for the bench press, the BFR group increased bench press, but it was not, not significant, whereas the heavy load group did. And all groups generally increased greater than the control group. And the other thing that I think I'd like to point out was that we did the seated row. There are studies that show that the muscle groups that aren't occluded increase muscle mass or increase muscle size, but it's mainly been shown with the bench press. I think we're the first study to show that you know, horizontal pulling exercises can also be improved uh, with BFR training. So I thought that was, that was one cool aspect. But again, the heavy load group trumped all the other groups. So really, when we summed all of the six exercises together in terms of the strength change, so we're looking at total tonnage, all groups increased total tonnage, but 
the heavy load group was greater than the BFR group and the light load group. So training heavy was, was better in terms of uh, increasing muscle strength. I think the total tonnage increase was something like 21%, whereas the change for the, the BFR group was 11%, and the change for the light load group was 12%. So heavy is better than BFR, but BFR is equal to lifting light loads, and all groups were, were greater than the control group, which didn't, didn't change strength. If you're going to want to improve muscle strength, as you said at the start of the podcast, lifting heavy is still what you need to do. Perfect. In terms of changes in body comp, muscle thickness, any major take-homes there for you? Not really. And we almost not excluded it from, a, from the paper, but we almost excluded the, the write-up in the discussion section because everything was so variable and there were no real differences between the groups across the training program, even from the control group. So that, that's pretty annoying. But what we, what we did find when the, when the groups were, you know, so there was no group by time effect, but there was a time effect across the training program. So lean mass increased, but that was the same across all groups. And, you know, it kind of means that the control group also increased lean mass. If you look at it like that, fat mass didn't change except for after detraining. And I, I actually attribute that to uh, people going away on Christmas break and coming back after the new year. Arm and leg lean mass increased but you know, no differences between groups. And for ultrasound, I think you'll find that the only two group by time differences were for quadriceps and biceps. And what you'll find there is the heavy load group increased quadriceps muscle thickness greater than all other groups. That was the only difference for absolute and also for the normalized stuff. Basically, you know, when we, when we look at the BFR stuff, I think one of the big conclusions everyone is coming to is that if you want to get stronger, okay, you can increase strength with, with BFR and there are populations that could do BFR training to get stronger. But if you're healthy, okay, you get stronger, but you're always going to get stronger lifting at higher percentages of your 1RM. But changes in muscle mass can be similar. So I think that's the big take-home. Strength, you need to lift heavy loads, but muscle mass changes, you can lift light loads, you can lift heavy loads, or you can lift light loads with BFR. I think that's my big take-home. Yeah, I totally agree on that one. And also, I guess, being a recreational athlete or recreational group, is there any conclusions that, that you can take out of that as well? Uh, in terms of uh, training or training with BFR? or oh, just Yeah, just or, training in, in general because you know, normally when you have people that are recreational trained, you can give them most type of training sessions and say if you've had no training background at all and you say, right, I, you know, at the end of the day, if you want the maximum response, you got to lift some heavy stuff here. However, athletes who are technically quite poor will get quite sore, might struggle with that type of training. So being able to look at different tools such as using BFR could potentially overcome those limitations of load and also technical limitations. So you can actually take time to teach them how to squat properly, how to bench press properly and so forth, and therefore get those increments in gains without putting them at risk due to poor technique, for example. Yep, I agree. And, uh, you know, regarding technique change, you know, we didn't have the time. It's already a 12-week training study. It would be nice now looking back to have done a, a familiarization training week or weeks on end because I think, you know, they probably weren't all equal through all exercises at baseline. You know, the squat group with the, with the light load group was so much lower than all the other groups. It's when you look at the, the figure, their squat 1RM increased way more than everyone else. So that novelty of just squatting and learning how to squat 
with light loads, you know, allowed them to increase their 1RM. So their, their 1RM wasn't a true 1RM at the start of training probably. So the learning effect with some of the groups, I think, could have been diminished if we had a familiarization session or training weeks at the start of the study. And that's also one of the things in hindsight, we'd always do things totally differently. Yeah. I'll go back to your, your question as well. You know, one of the conclusions I, I sort of came up to is with this healthy population, like everyone got better, everyone increased mass, everyone increased strength. And uh, we looked at this whole body aspect of BFR. Maybe that's also not the best way to go about it. Maybe you don't just train for eight weeks, blood flow restriction, you know, at, and at 20% of your 1RM. Maybe there's other ways. I was kind of thinking maybe the BFR group or the light load group probably could have done even better if we, if we did, you know, a two-week training block at 20%, increased to 30% for another two weeks, and then increased again to 40%. Because some of those individuals didn't increase strength at four weeks, so their percentage of 1RM couldn't change for the second training block. That could happen, or, or there's some training studies that lift heavy so in your athletic environment they lift heavy but you know maybe one or two exercises and then you might finish with with blood flow restriction and that's where i think some of this training really fits quite nicely in with athletic populations where you recognize that you need to lift a heavy load and but you can actually decrease that mechanical stress so instead of going you know 85 90 95 100 percent you know you can bring it down to say 70 75 percent supplement that decrement in mechanical stress with an increase in metabolic stress through BFR. And especially in that in-season type format where you've got one lift, you've got players you know, in a contact-based sport who are quite sore, can then use that to decrease the load on the body. Attenuates that joint pain and tendon pain. I know a lot of uh, football players really struggle with knee joints and tendinopathies and they just go, oh, it just feels so good. So I think that's where you can then bring the two worlds a little bit closer together and actually look at that high load moderate to high load lifting with BFR. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, talking in that contact sport realm, you know, maybe after a match, you know, players aren't ready to lift heavy. So maybe your first lifting session of the week is light loads with, with BFR. And then when they're, when they're right to go a few days before a game and, and five days post-match, you know, maybe they're ready to lift their heavy session then. So within a training week, you're getting a heavy stimulus in one session and you're, you're getting uh, your BFR stimulus, you know, your lighter lobes, higher volume work in another session. So could be another way to do it. Yeah, definitely. Just back to the paper, any concluding thoughts in relation to it? Overall, you know, what we found was that whole body resistance training with blood flow restriction did improve muscle strength and muscle size. So that's a plus, you know, and that's what is now known in the literature. People have been showing that for a few years now. And the general trend, I think, is that if you want to get strong, uh, you should lift heavy loads. And what we found was that our heavy load group improved their overall strength, you know, their total tonnage strength by 21%. BFR group increased by 11% and the light load group increased by 12%. You want to get strong, uh, lift heavy loads, and it's more similar to, to BFR and light load lifting. So they'll be the same. But in terms of muscle mass, perhaps all three types of training will improve muscle mass. And maybe that's because the training volume was high in this study, you know, six exercises, uh, multiple muscle groups that were hit through the training week, three times a week. For me, overall, if you want to get strong, lift heavy. And uh, if muscle mass gain is your thing, then, then lifting heavy or supplementing that with some BFR or even some light loads is going to be your thing as well. And as well, you know, if you're going to stop training for four weeks, you know, we've got athletes that, that disappear for a number of weeks and, and then return. And, you know, you, we always worry about uh, how much strength loss or, or muscle mass loss you know, what we did find is that the, the heavy load group was still 14% stronger after four weeks of detraining. 
The BFR group was 6% stronger, but only the, the heavy load group was significantly stronger than, than all the other groups as well. So again, that strength maintenance for me, uh, you still need to be lifting heavy weights during training to maintain strength after periods of detraining as well. That's probably the big take-homes for me. Perfect. Well, thank you very much for reviewing the paper. Really appreciate that. And, and obviously, it's always an honor to get the uh, first author coming onto the podcast. No problems, Chris. Yeah, thanks for that. So hopefully this gets up in a, a BFR special in Frontiers. It's not published yet, so fingers crossed it gets through. Definitely. And obviously, if it does get published, we'll know about it all through social media, um, which is a nice segue into your own social media following. How do people get a hold of you and see what you're up to? I think the best way for me is Twitter. I mean, I used to be pretty active on Twitter. Now I just sort of retweet a whole bunch of stuff and that's uh, at chris.bradner. So that's B-R-A-N-D-N-E-R. And it's the same for my Instagram, which is a mix of uh, social stuff and and training stuff. Uh, And my Facebook is more of a personal thing. So yeah, Twitter, Twitter's number one and my email is linked to there as well. So I'm pretty responsive via email and anyone can shoot me any questions or or queries uh, at any time. Thank you very much. And thanks for coming on board. Thanks, Chris. Okay. And thanks to all you listeners out there. Remember to leave us a rating on iTunes. Also visit us on our own socials at Snippet Science and also on the other forms through our website at snippetscience.com. Thanks for listening.